Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 22. I don't think you need the page number. It's pretty easy to find. Just go to the end. All right? Go to the end. It'll be there. My undergraduate degree is in marketing, as uh, some of you guys know. Um, and Brian, my youngest son, his his MBA is in marketing, and he um, does some brand management work for... Um, NABs, Lance Snyder used to be the name of the company. Now it's owned by Campbell Soup. But, you know, those little orange crackers that come. You know, I was talking to Brian a while back. NABs is pretty much a cultural snack here in the South, right? I mean, we all know what the orange crackers are. In California, folks aren't real excited about eating an orange cracker, all right? There's something unnatural about an orange cracker. You have to confess that, okay? That is not the normal color for a cracker. So... How do you market that orange cracker to those on the other side over there, you know, on the far left coast? How, how, do, you, how do you market that? Well, you can repackage it. You can, you know, you can put a new wrapper around it. All of those things could possibly work. They're still working on that, by the way. There's no real answer to that marketing uh, conundrum yet. Um, as, a, as a marketer in my undergrad work in my B.C. life, I'm a little leery of things that say new and improved. New and yeah, right. New and improved. That's that's just lame. If I can be real frank with you, that's that's lame for a marketer to throw that term up there. Uh, in fact, we studied a case study when I was in undergrad, um, talking about how this new and improved claim can be used to cover up what is just old and not working anymore. All right. One, one, this is true, one U.S. yogurt company years ago decided they wanted to downsize their product from 8 ounces to 6 ounces and not change the formula any. They just wanted you to get two less ounces in the same package for the same price but less product. So they put new and improved on the front of it and said in that little marketing caption down there that there was room now for you to mix fruit in it, Okay. So you got two ounces of air along with six ounces of yogurt for the same price as eight ounces of yogurt, but it's new and improved so you can feel better about that, okay? You can. So when I see new and improved, and I even thought about that as I titled this sermon, Life in the New and Better Eden, um, we don't, it's not like we can't see into the package of a yogurt pack and know what's on the inside of it, okay? I don't think any of us would argue that we live in a world that needs to be improved. We need new and improved, amen? And we have a, we have a Bible full of the proof, and we live in a world and community full of the proof that we need new and improved. And thank God that that is what awaits us. That's, that's what is, is in store for us. As we come to the end of our study in the book of Revelation, we'll wrap it up, uh, Lord willing, through the month of December. Um, we'll end with a recap and kind of go back and look over it all again. It is kind of cool, as JT said, that we anticipate through the Advent celebrating the first coming of Christ even as we wrap up our understanding of His second coming. Um, it's just kind of neat how God works it out for us to
be able to see the whole picture of his word in that way. So um, as, as you think about Revelation chapter 22, I'm going to read the passage in just a minute. It's also kind of cool to me that we are lighting the prophecy candle today and thinking about what the prophets of old spoke about, looked forward to, anticipated what they point us to through the words of prophecy that we see in the words of the New Testament, especially the prophecies that we see here in the book of Revelation. And we've been saying all along now throughout our study that you cannot understand the book of Revelation apart from the Old Testament. You cannot understand what John is writing, what his church heard and saw that first time they heard that letter read. We can't displace ourselves from that understanding of the Old Testament and still have a proper understanding of Revelation. And so even as we come to the end here, as we come to what we see here in chapter 22, we have to go back and see what the prophet said before. And here's the thing that's kind of been rolling around in my mind for the last... Turn over in the, in the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel. Specifically, if we're going to look at a couple of different passages in, um, in the section of Ezekiel that starts in chapter 40 and goes through 47. It's Ezekiel's vision of this new temple. Ezekiel's vision of, of God's temple. And it's an amazing section of this difficult book. Ezekiel is not an easy book, okay? And, and I've not preached through Ezekiel and I'm not going to make any promises about preaching through Ezekiel, okay? Um, I got in trouble with Revelation, so we're not going to do that with Ezekiel. But in, in Ezekiel chapter 40, there's one verse I want you to see for just a second before we look at another passage in Ezekiel and then in Revelation. In, I, in, in Ezekiel chapter 40, here's what he says in verse 4. And the man said to me, Son of man... Look with your eyes, hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. The prophet is told, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I will show you. From Genesis to Revelation, God is recording for us His faithful redemptive work that He wants us to set our eyes on and put our ears on it and set, set our hearts on it. He wants us to set our hearts on Him and all that He has for us in that relationship with Him. And that's the prayer that I have for our church. That's the prayer that I've had for, for me, is that we would set our eyes, our ears, and our hearts on what we have seen in the book of Revelation. And all that the prophet was promised, come and see, come and hear, come and set it in your heart. And as we look at this passage of Scripture, God is saying to us, I want you to go back and see how good it was in the first Eden. I want you to see what sin has done to that. And I want you to see with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart on what it's going to be like when it's made even better. 
made even better. The Apostle Paul said, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That's what revelation has been. The Spirit of God opening up the veil of heaven, the veil of the unseen world, and showing us what it is that God wants us to know and understand, to give our hearts hope, to give us a compelling vision of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do, and for us to be a part of that. We're beginning the week of prayer for foreign missions here. And, and what a compelling vision we should have as we see coming before us what we have here in this new heavens and the new earth, this new Jerusalem. This is the city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. The vision we see in Revelation 22 is the vision that compelled Abraham as an old man to leave everything he knew and go where he did not even know he was going because he was looking forward to a city, a city that we see before us here. The rest of the saints in Hebrews desired, a, it says the writer said, they desire a country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is named to be, not ashamed to be called their God because they're looking for this city that God has prepared for them. And that's what we saw in the first part of Revelation. Back in Revelation chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even all that He saw. So as we kind of come to the end of this, and we're not quite at the end of Revelation, but as we come to the end of this vision of the new heavens and the new earth, we go back to Genesis. All right, we go back to where it began, and that's that's what this this whole book is one story. All right, we ne- we've got to keep that in mind. The oper- the opening chapters of Genesis give us the opening account of God's creation. The closing chapters of the Bible give us the the account of God's new creation, His new heaven and His new earth. Genesis shows us what we lost, and from Genesis on through. It gives us record after record, account after account of what we read now every day in our news. That we live in a broken, hurting, dark world. And it is not getting better, okay? It is not getting better. We are not evolving to some fuller sense of good. No, it continues to digress. It continues to decline. And Revelation tells us where it's going. And Revelation 22 that we come to today is not just, it's not just a return to Genesis 1 and 2. It is better, okay? Keep that in mind. It is better. Alright? So let's look at it together. What I want to do to help us just kind of see the, see the setting, see the context for where we're at, um, is go back and read a little bit of chapter 21 and then um, go into chapter 22. We saw Jason just did a great job leading us through this description of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride prepared for her groom. Um, he saw this holy city coming down, radiant, glorious, in unex- just indescribable terms of the glory of this city. In chapter 21, starting in verse 22... Follow along with me as I read. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, 
For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his, nation, and his servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord, the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His, to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we as your saints can see and savor all that you have for us in Christ. Lord, your servant Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of, our glorious, of, of your glorious inheritance in the saints? Lord, what a glorious inheritance it is. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray you would open up the eyes of our hearts. Open up our ears to hear. Help us see and set our affections on the life that you have for us in this place. Give us a hunger and thirst for it now. God, give us a burden for those around us that are thirsting and starving and need to know You. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at this. Let's think about life in the new and better Eden. All right? I'm not going to use improved. We're not, we'll avoid that term. All right? Because I don't like it. Life in the new and better Eden. First off, I want us to see this picture that we have in the first part of this, that it means constant satisfaction and abundance. Now, some of these phrases that I'm going to use are kind of going to speak to our core appetites as humans, all right? And, and, and part of us in our fallen state would think it is not good for us to want to be in abundance. It is not good for us to want to be constantly satisfied. And, and I understand where we might be coming from from that. And part of the concern that I've had as I've even been praying and working through this is just the constant challenge that comes to us from what has infiltrated the church in the gospel, in, excuse me, in the prosperity gospel. It, it, in a way, it makes it difficult for me to, to be able to work through this just in some of the conflict that I have in my own mind. Because there's false prophets out there with, that would tell us that the salvation that we have means better life now, better health now, prosperity now. That part of what it means to be redeemed out of sin is to be redeemed out of poverty and brokenness and sickness and all of that. And that's a lie. 
That's a lie. That's not the real gospel. And so as we look at this picture, I want us to think about being constantly satisfied and to be constantly in this realm, this place where there is abundance. And that's what the prophets wanted us to look forward to. We've seen that in the, what we heard in the prophecy candle. So the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Remember the river. Remember the river in the garden. All right? In the Garden of Eden. It tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that a river watering the garden flowed from Eden and there was separated into four headwaters. And it goes on to describe how these waters flowed out of the garden into the world. I think that was God's design from the very beginning. That from the garden would flow this nourishing and this abundance that would go out into all of the rest of the world. And so there's this picture of the river flowing out of the garden. The prophet Zechariah saw it. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And then in Ezekiel, turn back to Ezekiel in chapter 47. This is such a beautiful picture of what we see before us here in Revelation. Ezekiel 47. It's on 734 if you want to use your pew Bible there. It might make it a little easier to see. A little easier to find. Ezekiel chapter 47. It says in verse 1, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, look at this, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced the east. The water was flowing down from the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out of the way by the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side, going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through water as it was ankle deep. And again he measured a thousand and led me through water and it was knee deep. And again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be many fish. And so there's this picture of flourishing and flowing coming out of the place of God, coming out from where God is, from the temple there. So there's this picture of water, of life, of refreshment, of abundance. It's the same thing that Jason read for us in Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy mountain of the Most High. It's the very same thing that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 4 when He encountered the woman at the well. She said, what kind of water are you talking about? Our, our father Jacob dug this well. He watered himself, his family, and his flocks here. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is speaking to you, give me a drink. 
You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She didn't get it. She didn't understand. He didn't even have a bucket. What in the world was he talking about? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, talking about Jacob's well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water will give him, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's a river. There's an abundance. It's not a trickle. It's not a creek. It's not a stream. It's flowing and it's full. There's purity there. There's nothing unclean. We already saw that in chapter 21. It's clean. It's bright as a crystal. I can't imagine that. It's been, we've had the opportunity to go a couple of times up to Glacier National Park there on the Canadian-Montana border. It's just pristine. It's incredible. And the water that comes off of those glaciers on top of the mountain is just as clear as it can be, but as it gets into the rivers and starts flowing down, it begins to get a little of a green tint in it. It's kind of weird, the, the green tint that's in that water. Here this water is clear as crystal. There's no pollution. There's no moss. There's no mud. There's no runoff. It's beautiful. And it has one source. Do you see that? There's one source. It comes from one place, John tells us. From the throne of God and of the Lamb. Make no mistake here, it is a shared throne. Okay? There's so much Christology here. There's so much good meat for us to grasp and understand about who Jesus is. And it flows from the throne. It's the same thing we saw earlier in Revelation 4 and 5. That the throne of God that's at the center of the universe is shared by, by the Lamb. By the Lamb who is the Lion. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, John tells us in his prologue. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So don't buy into that, that false, you know, that lie that comes that, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. No, He did. And the Scriptures are clear in who He is. It is a shared throne, and it flows from God. There is no temple here. There is, that's, that's what we saw earlier. I want us to think about that for just a second. That is profound. Jason touched on it last week. It started in the garden, right? God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then later on, God's presence, that relationship's been broken. But God in His grace makes a way to come and be with His people in what we see in this Old Testament tent, this tabernacle. And then later on, it's the temple itself. In 70 A.D., that temple is destroyed. And as that temple is destroyed, Jesus has already come on the scene and Jesus has already told us in these veiled words that they did not understand then, destroy this temple and I will raise it back in three days. They thought He was out of His mind. They thought He was crazy. It took us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days, they said. But the temple He spoke of was His body, it says in John chapter 2. So Jesus takes that understanding of the dwelling place of God, what John has already alluded to in the prologue, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And so that reality of now God among us in Christ is carried one step further into the people of Christ, into the church. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with who? 
Jesus Christ Himself is the chief cornerstone. And you are being joined together, He says, and built into a holy temple in the Lord, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, Jason touched on it last week. We need to be reminded. This holy city, it is a people, but it is also a place. We need to keep that in mind as we look at Revelation chapter 22. All right? There is, this is a physical place where people will be living and walking and working. So, so that's the picture there. But what's amazing about this physical place that has such deep spiritual understanding, and, and here's something Paul says in Ephesians 3, this beautiful temple coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride, Adorned with beauty that's unimaginable? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that word manifold wisdom is, is the same idea behind taking a diamond and holding up to the light and seeing the light come through the prism of that stone. So all of these precious stones that we saw in Revelation chapter 21, all of these agate and jasper and sapphire and onyx and carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, all of these beautiful stones, just imagine the beauty there and the reflection, the glory, the light. It's unimaginable. It is a place. But God is holding up His redeemed people. There is no temple there. God Himself is with us. And He's holding us up, as you will, if you will, as this beautiful manifestation of His creativity. Just how great and good He is. It's a spiritual picture, but it is a physical place. The river of the water of life. I want you to think about a couple of applications here. One, so practical, um, and yet I think, it's, I think it's appropriate. There are over a billion people in the world today who do not have safe water to drink. All right? Now, I'm not going to take this and go in a crazy direction with it. I just want you, I'm going to bring it back together. I want you to think about this for just a second. Though. There are a billion people in this world, according to the United Nations, that do not have safe water to drink. There are three billion people in this world who can't even wash their hands safely. All right? They don't have a way to sanitize themselves with water. North Carolina Baptist Baptist on Mission have been providing the means for wells to be dug throughout this world and still are. It's a great way for us as, as a church to be involved in, in, in the physical reality that this picture entails, even as it gives us this picture of what is to come. There is, there is physical thirst that still needs to be addressed, but there is spiritual thirst that goes well beyond that, that this, this picture for us, I think, represents well. According to the Joshua Project, the world population this morning when I looked was 7,903,000,000, I think, and of course the numbers are going up. That's the way the Joshua Project does it. 42% of these people are thirsting spiritually to death without any way to get to the well that is the gospel. No, no, no gospel well. They live in a spiritually dry land where there is literally no gospel water. No churches, no Christians, no way for them to hear. 
There's no way for them to hear Jesus stand up and say, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, Jesus said in John 7. They need to hear that invitation, right? That's what the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is all about. That's what the week of prayer for international missions is about. Spiritually, there is a world thirsting to death. The promise that we have here in Revelation 22 is this beautiful picture of satisfaction and abundance. But notice what comes next. There's this tree there. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Life in the new and better Eden means consistent provision and healing. Consistent. Not just abundant, but consistent. One commentator put it this way, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tragic river of wickedness that flowed from that sinful decision on Adam's part produces a flood of miseries, sin, sickness, sorrows, tears, and death. So Adam and Eve ate from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a river ensued, a dam broke. And that dam, that water that came was sin, sickness, sorrow, tears, and death. We read in Genesis 3, listen to this. You're familiar with it. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Sealed off, shut off, guarded until now. Until now. In Christ, the gate is opened. The sword is removed. The angel is said, stand down and the way is opened. The tree of life. So there's this city here, okay? Now, I'm, I'm a country boy. You guys know that. I love the mountains. I love outdoors. I'm not excited about eternity with concrete walls and a concrete sky. All right? That's kind of like floating on the clouds with a harp. Nah. I mean, I guess it beats hell, but... <laughs> but that's not the picture, okay? That's not the picture, This is such a beautiful picture of this city that is a garden city. Man, it's it's so beautiful. I, I can't wait to see what it is there. And so again, the prophet saw this coming and he wanted us to see it. Look back at Ezekiel 47. All right, Ezekiel was on to something here. It's great. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Gerald, there ain't no way you're going to get through verse 5. And you're right, okay? So just chill out, all right? We'll, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. All right? So in Ezekiel, back in chapter 47, I didn't read this far, but look down at verse 12. Ezekiel 47, 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because of the water for them. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. 
So John has these words from the prophet ringing in his ear. The Holy Spirit is telling him to write down this vision that he sees. And here is what Jesus had promised back in Revelation chapter 2. The first letter to the church there, the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. So the angel's gone, the sword's gone, the gate is open and we can come back in and get what God very much in His grace told us to stay away from. But now it's opened. Is it one large tree? I mean, I'm trying to figure this out. Is it one large tree? The, the way it's worded there in, in Revelation, it says that there was on either side the tree of life. So... How's that work? Are the roots coming out from underneath the river and it's growing up on both sides? I'm not sure. Is it a grove of trees? Is it a bunch of trees? I, I'm not sure. It really doesn't matter to me. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't think it matters. It represents the same thing that the river does, just a whole, a whole new dimension to it. This is life. This is provision. This is abundance. This is everything that we would ever want or need, and it comes from God. You find it nowhere else, in no one else. Nothing else can offer what He offers. It comes from Him. That's it. It's a fruitful tree. Alright? It says it's giving us everything we need and all that we would need. Greg Beale reminds us of an important point as we work through Revelation. It says the total of 12 months of fruit bearing together with 12 kinds of fruit reinforces the repeated multiples of 12 already used. That highlights the fullness of God's redemptive provision for us. So the number 12 is significant, okay? And it says that it's going to bring, bring us this fruit each month. Now, here's a little mystery that I'm still, I have no idea how this is going to work. There's no sun or moon there. And that, I think, is what controls the seasons, right? That's what controls the months. So I don't think time's going to be kept in the same way that it's kept here. So what does it mean that there'll be fruit? Every month. I do not know what that means. And I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's going to be there whenever we want it. All right? None of those trees are going to freeze. None of those trees are going to dry up because there's no water there. This is going to be always, forever, what we want, when we want it, and when we need it. It's beautiful. And there is healing in this tree. Not only is it fruitful, it's healing. Now, here's another mystery. Healing from what? Right? Have you thought about that? There's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. I don't believe there's going to be any boo-boos there. There's not going to be any broken bones there. So healing from what? You know, and I think again, the picture here is one of wholeness and health and flourishing. It's a picture of the life that we have in Christ. It's the picture of a healed and made whole creation. And a heal and made whole people living in that restored creation. It's a picture of what we saw back in Revelation chapter 2 because it said it's for the healing of the nations. And Revelation chapter 7 gave us this great, beautiful picture of multitudes that no one could number from every nation and tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Here they are, eating from the tree, healed from everything that sin broke and killed and made sick. There's healing here, and it comes from Jesus. Salvation belongs to our God. It does in Revelation 7, and it does here. What a beautiful picture this is of what comes through Christ. 
John's prologue to the Gospel of John said, In Him was life. It was, it is, and it will be. In Him alone. In Him alone. Abundance and satisfaction. Flourishing and healing. Let's look at one more thing. Life in this new and better Eden includes work that is delightful and meaningful. I take that from verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Again, let's reflect back for a second on Genesis chapter 3. God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are from dust and to dust you will return. That is a cursed world. That is a cursed humanity. That is a cursed situation, a cursed scenario, and that's the world that we live in, but not forever, praise God. Paul tells us that the creation around us is groaning under the weight of this curse, waiting for the day when it will be reversed. And so the curse that came on Adam and his offspring, that's you and me, the curse that came on us and the hardship that's in this life, and how long does that hardship last? Until we die. Until we die. And God cursed the ground, saying it would produce thorns and thistles. Labor is cursed. Our work is cursed. It's just a struggle. But yet God, in His amazing, the pictures that He gives us in the Old Testament of what's to come, He whetted the appetite of the Israelites. He just whetted their appetite. In Deuteronomy 28, He gives them these promises about the promised land. Blessed you shall be in the city, and blessed you shall be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of the ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The promised land was a type. It's a picture, okay? It's pointing us to something better to come. Now, it's pointing back to what was lost, but it's pointing us to what will come. The blessing was promised to them through their obedience. How well did they do? Hmm. The blessing is promised through the obedience of the one who would come. And his name is Jesus. And the blessing of his obedience, the blessing of his work, the blessing of what he did in fulfillment of what God had promised is where the earth is reversed. The curse is taken away. Death is removed. All of this is done because Jesus took the curse on himself. Right? He took the curse so that we could have the blessing. And the promised land that's promised to us here is far beyond anything that they saw back then. It was far beyond anything. And the productivity is the same. There was just a struggle. A struggle. Did you know rocks reproduce? I don't know that that's true scientifically. But I do know that every spring on Pinnacle Drive... There at my grandpa's land, when we went out to get the garden ready, which, by the way, I hated. I just I hated working in the garden. But amazingly, over the year, from the last spring, 
all of these rocks that we had piled up on the side so Grandpa and Dad could run a plow through that, they reproduced and their little baby rocks had grown up during the course of the year and they were there just waiting to be picked up and mauled off. And we'd pick them up and haul them off and next year there were more baby rocks and we picked them up and hauled them off. That's a cursed ground. It's the cursed ground. It was hard work. It was frustrating. And that's what life in a cursed, broken world is. It's frustrating. It's fruitless. And you know what? It does not last. It crumbles with time. But here, the phrase that's used, his servants will worship him, or literally his, his, his slaves will serve him. It's a difficult language in, in our cultural context, but, but that's the word. Servant is just a bond servant. It's a slave. And the word worship there is translated serve. And so we, what we have here is the people of God serving God and doing it for the glory of God and delighting in it. It's just an amazing thing to see that their work is being carried out. It's coming to fruition and, and it's bringing great joy. How do I know that? Because there's no tears in heaven. It's, it's just going to be the coolest thing to see. And so what we have here is the creativity of our God who is going to one day hold up his church to display that creativity. Here being made in the image of God, the Imago Dei includes that creativity. And the redeemed of God will bear that out in its fullness and put it on display for all of the world to see, for the new heaven and the new earth to see. It's said back in Revelation chapter 21, by the light of the glory of God will the nations walk and all the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Here is the kings in this redeemed world, and I don't understand the government structure, but here the kings and these in authority are going to bring all that they have done in through their creativity, through their ability, and bring it in and put it on display for the glory of God. That's work. That's them pulling out their portfolio and saying, this is what we've done. So it's an amazing thing through the book of Revelation. We are called sons and daughters of the King, and we are receiving an inheritance for that, right? We're called His heritage. He sees us as His own inheritance. We are sealed by His identity on our foreheads. We'll see that. We are His bride, holy and clean before Him. But church, we are also His servants, literally His slaves, His bondservant. And we'll delight in it. Just as Jesus delighted in it. Because that's who He was. That's who He came to be. Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself and by taking the form of a servant was born in the likeness of men. And being born in the likeness of men, the equation there between men and, 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 and slaves, being born in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is, praise God, he is our, 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 our servant. That slave I had a conversation yesterday with one of my grandsons. How, how is it that Jesus can be fully God and fully man? You know, really stretch your imagination. How is it he can be fully God and a slave? And yet that's what he is. That's what he is. And the rightful response to our servant king is to serve him. And it's the role of the Old Testament priest there. That's the idea. His servants will worship him. It's the idea of Old Testament priests. I'm glad I wasn't an Old Testament priest, all right? I mean, wrangling and corralling and killing animals day in and day out, 
keeping their blood, pouring their blood out, keeping the fire burning. Oh, my word, you think ministry's hard now. Golly. And that's what, but that's his picture. But it's all reversed, right? Jesus fulfilled that Old Testament sacrificial system. His blood is sufficient. His sacrifice is the last one. And in service to our King, we will work and serve. And I don't know what it's all going to be like. I know it will not be boring. It won't. I'll get to do the woodwork that I love to do. I believe that, right? You'll get to do those things that you love to do, that God has created you to want to do. It's this picture here, this this just amazing picture of work that is worship and worship that is work and we'll delight in it and it'll be fruitful and we'll love Jesus and we will enjoy Him forever. Let me close with just this one thought. I did a deacon retreat two weeks ago for the deacons out at Theresa Baptist Church. Um, and I haven't forgotten what I said last week. We're going to pray for another local church here before we finish. I want us to start doing that every week. Um, but one of the things we talked about there was what exactly does it mean to be a deacon? What does it mean to be a, a servant within the church, to follow the example of Christ? And I used, um, I used a couple of passages from Mark, and based on a, a little book I have on, on the deacon ministry, it, it translates something. Just listen to this. This is these two passages in the, in the Gospel of Mark that point us to Jesus. But it points us to what we are called to be now in addition to what we will be then. All right? Mark 9, 33 through 35 says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Now, the context of this is profound because Jesus has just talked about how he's going to go and be crucified and die and raised. So he's talking about the cross in the clearest terms that he has up until this point in time. Just after that conversation, it says this, now, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. What? So Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and deacon of all. I'm taking the term, the Greek term there, and just transliterating it to diakonos, deacon servant if anyone would be first he must be the last of all and be the deacon of all in in mark 10 let's do the same thing jesus called them to him and said to them you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you whoever would be great among you must be your deacon and who would ever be first among you must be slave of all for even the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon and give His life as a ransom for many. That's a good place to stop today. That's the call that He's given us until then, right? Until then. To serve as unto the Lord for His glory, our good, and the satisfaction of our souls even here. One other point of application I want to make before we close out is this picture of the water of life flowing from the throne. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, we are not, we don't have to wait until then to have this nourishment. All right? In fact, we're commanded not to. 
Look at, look at Psalm 1. Let's just close with this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now verse 4 may be more applicable to some in this room or some that may hear. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away and they will not stand in the judgment in verse 5 so the point of application does need to be made come to jesus today i know the thirst of your soul because that's what my life was like before i came to christ nothing satisfied nothing nothing would fill the appetite and nothing would quench the thirst because you were not made to be satisfied in this world God didn't create us for that. He created us to be satisfied and filled only in Him. And He is Jesus. And Jesus has come that you could have life and have it full and abundant and satisfying. Would you come to Jesus today? And church, rooted in Christ, grounded in Him, that that fruit would flow from our lives. It's not seasonal It's relational. And may God make that so in each of our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank You for this Word. Thank You that we can look forward to finishing it next week, God, and just be compelled this week by this vision of what life is going to be like in that amazing place. But Lord, thank You for the life that we have today in Christ. And may we live that out in faith before a lost and hurting world around us. Father, I thank You today for Your Word. Let it bear fruit in our lives. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be down front to serve you, receive you, pray with you as we worship together as we close.